So I'm in, I'm, I'm in the dream and I, it's first person. So it's just me looking around or whatever. I'm on a basketball court and it's about to start a pickup game. And it occurs to me or somebody says to me in the dream that it's going to be full court, that it's not just a half court game that we're going to be playing full court. And in the dream, I drop the ball and I walk away. And that's how I wake up is me saying enough of this. I'm not, I'm not doing that's any of that. Not doing no none of that full, full court. court that's, a young man's game. that's a young man's yeah, running game. back and forth. Yeah. I so do think that's I said your my, dreams trying to tell you that you're over the hill. That's my, yeah. yeah. My subconscious is saying, this is what 30 is. This is what 30 is like. So I, I had a dream last night that my mom wanted to borrow my car to drive it out of state and I was like, who's going to pay for all that gas? And she was like, well, you should just sell your wedding ring. <laughs> so it's like, what's that dream trying to tell me, Mike? Welcome to The Voyage Podcast, a show that traverses the oceans of myth and legend through the lens of Catholic theology and philosophy. Come aboard as we set sail in pursuit of the heroic life and Christian virtue with your hosts, Mike Schramm and Jacob Platty. So, uh, okay. So vampires. Yeah, vampires. Speaking of, you know, there's a famous... Talk about uh, derailing. There's a famous um, painting called The Nightmare um, that has like this golem looking creature, almost like a gargoyle, like sitting on okay. top of a woman's chest. It's uh, from the 19th century, Oh yeah, century, I can picture I that. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty famous. You see that oftentimes in like vampire collections. They'll use that as like an image of a vampire. Like when so somebody's how, researching, like when it's when they're like, "Oh my gosh, is this a vampire?" And that's part of their research montage. Is yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It'll be that's that going to show up in that student's PowerPoint presentation. That image is going to. Oh, it, like honestly, it's a creepy. Yeah. It's a creepy image, so uh, it works. Yeah. So that's how that's that's how we're tying the dreams to the vampires, Mike. See, I solved the problem. Sure. Thank mm-hmm. goodness. Glad one of us can uh, keep this uh, train rolling. You so know, anyway, since we're still on Monster Month, since this Monster Month just, it's like you had to pick the October where there's five Tuesdays. So since <laughs> we're true. still in Monster Month. <laughs> Which I am uh, so excited about. Hopefully we so don't So yeah, just we're like... going through. <laughs> and, and you wanted to be like, oh, it's so basic. We're talking about zombies. But it's like, what could be more basic than vampires? So why don't you kick us off? Uh, you, you know wanna, what? We're going to go through some of our favorites. This is my opportunity. The reason why we're doing this vampire. And you know what? Before all said and done, I suspect we are going to do a second episode on Dracula. So this is kind of a two-parter, which we've been trying yeah, to get away from. You suspect as if the Dracula wasn't your first idea. So. The Dracula. <laughs> I want to talk about Dracula, but there's this. You see, you see, Mike, this is a hobby horse of mine. A, oh, a okay. Blood-sucking, undead hobby horse of mine, uh, where I am going to to bring back the true folklore of vampirism for a world that has turned them into sparkly, you know, sun-drenched lovers or something like that. I have no idea what that's a reference to. Yeah, what reference could I possibly be making? Or, or you know, I mean, honestly, we're going to go through all of it. But there's so much to discuss here, and hopefully it's not going to turn into just one giant cloud-yelling lecture. But this this is my platform. I have a platform, and I'm going to use it yeah. for the things I think are important. And that is demystifying vampirism 
he chooses the day that our culture. producer calls in sick to uh, <laughs> yeah to say this is where I finally get to say my piece. Right? We're gonna set the record straight on this uh, thoroughly abused folklore, um, which is way cool, especially for Christians. And it's going to take two episodes if you combine Dracula as like a second Jacob, half to this episode. We'll say that Jacob has that Von Helsing complex. He's got to. Uh, I have a Von save. Helsing, a Van Helsing complex. That's right. Um, okay. So, but I also recognize that because this could just turn into me like lecturing the audience. <laughs> so uh-huh. I thought ultimately I was like, you know what? We're going to make a little, we're going to make a little vampire story sandwich, Mike. And okay. the first piece of bread is going to be just pop culture fun stuff. Let's just talk about a few vampire right, movies yeah. we like or stories. That's accessible. Then I'm going to, then I'm going, yeah, we're going to, it's like a compliment sandwich, only it's like interesting things for the audience in the front, stuff only Jacob cares about in the middle, interesting <laughs> things for the audience on the end. And hopefully we just keep them. Hopefully they just persevere yep. through my my. You I'll know, be ranting. sure to give the timestamps so people know when to uh, <laughs> yeah skip ahead. Um, but you know what? I think this is all very interesting stuff. So hopefully our audience will too. Uh, but yeah, let's start off with some fun idea. Like you know, let's let's keep it fun. Let's let's like lure them in with the fun stuff. Yeah. So let's no, talk figured, about vampire you know, movies or books. We or can't whatever. talk about vampire movies without without first talking about the basis, the foundation for vampire movies, which is of course Twilight. And so okay. <laughs> <Yes>. I thought that. <laughs> yes, Twilight. See, I, I wanted to go exactly. on that. I wanted to go on that angle. Yeah. Nice. No. Um, so, of course, referring to the uh, the sparkly, sexy vampires that you were talking about. Um, yep, but anyway, exactly. what are some real... I, I can remember some some real, you know, fun ones. Yeah, I well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'm, I'm super horror movie guru, vampire guru. I'm curious, like, what's your background? I mean, like, do you have... I mean, do you care so, about this topic at all? Are there any movies that you actually like that are about vampires? Blah, yeah. blah. Um, blah, blah. Well, I should have said as, blah, blah. But... Speaking as, uh, so I can, I probably the, the first, um, you know, I can remember probably too young, but have seen From Dust Till Dawn, the Quentin Tarantino, George Clooney. Uh, that is truly a Robert Rodriguez, is that? Yeah. That's right. But, Robert um, Rodriguez. Yeah. yeah. Quentin Tarantino um, then, uh, helped write it and it was directed by Robert Rodriguez though. Though which, I do I mean, believe. It definitely has that feel to it. Well, all right. So it's an interesting case because. It's almost, it, there's two different movies that are slapped together. Do you remember how there was that grindhouse thing that happened in the early 2000s yeah. where yep. it was Tarantino and Rodriguez and they both directed a film based upon old, cheesy, crazy movies from the 70s and they showed back to back in theaters. Um, from Dust Till Dawn is actually kind of like a prototype of that. And if you watch that okay. movie, the first half of it is Quentin Tarantino's movie. And it's got a very different vibe. Which, they, the, I was going to say, guys, it's got a they very, capture, like, it's, yeah. it's like they, a Reservoir they, they Dogs almost hostage. kind of vibe to it. Yeah, they take a hostage. It's about two brothers. One's played by Quentin Tarantino, and he's crazy. The other one's played by George Clooney, <laughs> and he's like and the early, straight-laced yeah, one. Early, yeah, early. it's what a wild thing that this movie exists. Um, mm. But like that one's really Tarantino-esque, and it's them talking the witty dialogue, and it gets kind of 
crazy and, and sadistic. It, it's it's very talking Tarantino. about burgers from McDonald's. I think something like that. Or no, that's <laughs> yeah, Pulp that's, Fiction. Yeah, that is Pulp Fiction. <laughs> it is that sort of like uh, mundane uh, conversation, like you were saying, mundane in the face of this. You know, yeah, sometimes it's grisly very situation. The second half, though, is when they get to a vampire infested. Actually, it's it's a it's an adult strip, strip club, club on the border, yeah. Mexican border. Oh, ad- um, oh, thanks for saying an adult strip club and not a uh, yeah, well, not for yeah. the kids. Right? Thanks for giving that qualifier. Uh, <laughs> yes. It's not- but it's it's infested with vampires, and that's and that's like a really loony, goofy second half of a movie, and it's that's Robert mm. Rodriguez's um half of the movie, yeah. and so it's almost like they did the Grindhouse thing like ten years in just like one film though. Anyway, that's a great mm. pick. That's a great pick. It's not for the kids, yeah. but nope. they get they get holy young, water and but, super uh, soakers. This is a movie yeah. where you have a family. There's a lot of good themes in that movie too. It's about like family and redemption and all that. The father, is a fa- yeah, the sure. father is not a, a uh, he is a pastor. I'm pretty sure he's a pastor, not a priest, but he is a church leader who Definitely has not. lost his yeah. faith. Yeah, he's lost his faith. And so now he's just taking his kids across country on a road trip. And that's how they get stuck in this whole thing because Clooney and Tarantino, they're bank robbers on the run and they hostage situation, the family and they end up at a vampire club. And, uh, but it's all about the father regaining his faith. Like he has to like find his faith in Christ again, um, mm-hmm. in order to like bless holy water, basically <laughs> it becomes like a, well, it kind of ties into, and I, I can't remember where this episode is going to fall in relationship to our Babadook episode, but it's very much a, you know, the, the purpose of exorcism is ultimately to bring about conversion and faith. And so you kind of mm-hmm. see that theme, you know, it's, it's obviously not the same in terms of like exorcism here, but it's bringing out the evil, seeing the evil for what it is. And it, that's actually what spurs a person's deeper faith, deeper trust um, in Christ ultimately. Specifically is what happens in that movie because the, um, the dad, he's like, well, obviously evil exists. Obviously these creatures are demonic. And so if Satan's mm-hmm. real, then God must be real too. And that's kind of like mm-hmm. where he's like, you know what? Yeah. Okay. I'm back. I'm back. Let's do this. Let's fight evil with God. And so like, yeah. and that's, that's like in the script of the movie, you know, it's kind of like where he goes to. So we're not even like really like stretching it there. Anyway, he gets a bunch of super soakers and uh, they fill it with holy water. And the rest of that movie, one of the kids has a, a um, jackhammer that has like a wooden stake in it. One of the kids yep. has the super soaker and like water balloons too. Um, mm. what, some, what are some of the other wacky Didn't they carve a they... cross into the bullets? They carved a cross into the bullets, I thought? Yeah, Wasn't they were carved yeah, into shotgun shells. And so like w- the dad, he gets a shotgun, but like the pump action has like a, a means to put another stick through it. So his shotgun is shaped like a oh. cross, like when he's so like, like a shield sort of thing. Yeah, too, yeah, like he has like he holds a cross up and then he like puts it down and like shoots with it with a shotgun. Anyway, yeah. this is all very silly, but uh, <laughs> hey, you know what? Like, it's a good movie. I appreciate you uh, bringing it up. Um, it has a actually it has kind of a, a sort of cabin in the woods ending where you know how it pans out and you see like the ravine kind of underneath yeah, uh, up behind the, the club. Well, it's because, you know, all those vampires, they live off of um, eating truckers. So the truckers mm. show up to, uh, you know, this adult entertainment location, get lured in, gentleman's honey club. trap, gentleman's a gentleman's club, club yeah. right? Yeah. Um, a blue collar gentleman's club. And uh, they mm-hmm. get lured in. But those vampires, that's why they have super soakers, by the way, because there's all these like shipments. The vampires like have all these like trucker shipments. 
but they got to do mm-hmm. something with all those trucks. And so they're like, they just like drive them off the ravine behind it. And so you pan yeah. out and it's just this like valley of trucks. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, another one I remember is, and again, also pretty violent. Maybe, I don't know if it's a uh, really salacious, but, um, the blade movie, I remember seeing, especially the first one. I don't know if I even saw two or three, but the first blade movie I saw a few times. That's got a comic yeah, book connection too. That is, yeah. That's based on a Marvel comic book. Back in the seventies, they were uh, into the black exploitation thing, trying to capitalize on that. And so, a black vampire hunter, half vampire, um, daywalker, a daywalker. Day I think is yes, it. indeed. Mm. That's got um, a very mythical kind of sound to it, doesn't it? It does. It does. It actually. So, one of my personal favorites kind of stories is called Vampire Hunter D. This is a Japanese creation. It was a series of novels, and he had like 20 novels. They've started to be made into English. I've only read one of them, but they got turned into an anime too, like a couple anime movies. But Vampire mm-hmm. Hunter D is the son of Dracula, and he is a half, he is a daywalker, like Blade. Okay. He's half, half vampire, half human, but he has also turned his back. What's cool about Vampire Hunter D, though, is it takes place like 10,000 years in the future. And it's okay. this really, really weird world that is like a mixture of like medieval reality, but it's also got like derelict old technology in it. But it's fundamentally like like a European villager type. But there's also like Western elements. So that's what's so cool about it is like the world itself is this crazy mix of like medieval Europe, the Wild West, and like derelict space technology. And then so you is, have the vampires kind of whole, and the like, human mm-hmm. cannibal for Leibowitz feel where it's like it is. we're in yeah, the future, it's, it's but very, it also yeah, is absolutely. Kind of the past That's a too. good connection. So. It's very cannibal for Leibowitz. And that whole, the whole shtick there was the vampires actually rose up and took over humanity. And the apocalypse was mm-hmm. like a vampire apocalypse. But then the vampires okay. like fell into disrepair and like their culture died out. They like, I don't know. I forget. I don't, ran out of people to eat or something. Who knows? But like, yeah. uh, so you have the humans trying to like recreate society in the aftermath of the vampires, and the vampires are still around, but they're far fewer in number. And hmm. that's kind of the context there. It's a fascinating mythology. That's that he's that's made. not the one. No, uh, there because there was the other one. Wasn't it called something like Daybreak or Day something? Where, yeah, there's um, uh, what is that? The, Daybreakers like or something like that? And Ethan and, and, Hawk, I think. Ethan Hawk, yeah. Where it's well, like there's like the vampires are running out of blood. The blood, the humans, like they haven't. You know what I'm saying? You remember that? Yeah, one? absolutely. Yeah, I do. Absolutely. Yeah, it's also got dude. It's got the dude from Jurassic Park in it. Why can't I think of his name? I love that guy. Sam Neil or Jeff Sam Neil. Sam Neil. Yes, Neil. absolutely. Yeah, that's actually um, we, that wasn't on our list, but because I, I didn't think of that one until just now when you were. But uh, that's another. I mean, I thought it's, about it's, it's, I thought about like twenty cool more twist. movies I could have put on this list, but I can't. I mean, what am I going to do? I just so I tried to put representative yeah. movies from. There's a there's a million vampire movies out there, you know. Yeah, that could have exactly. made this list. Um, you know, some one of my more favorite ones from the recent years is what we do in the shadows, which got turned into a TV oh, yeah. show. But I saw that's the movie. Tai, I haven't seen Tai Ti Wakiki. Is that did I say his name right? He did the th- he's done the last yeah. couple of Thor movies. He's yeah. Um, but uh, he kind of made a splash with this pseudo documentary about vampires called What We mm-hmm. Do in the Shadows. And he's a New Zealand filmmaker. It takes place in New Zealand, and it's hilarious. It is a hilarious and loving send up of like <laughs> vampire tropes. 
And yeah. the TV show is hilarious too, but I feel like the, be- okay. the first season was like the best by far. And the second season's yeah. like, you really only just like keep going so long with the shtick, but they still do mm. an admirable job. It's just the first season's by far the best season. Well, and the the movie, I remember the draw for me was actually uh, Jermaine Clement from um, Flight of the Concords was in there. Mm, okay. And so that yeah. was bef- before I'd even heard of, yeah, the director. So, so no, it's, uh, I, I, yeah, I thought the movie was, like you said, it, it takes a lot of those tropes and, and kind of makes fun of them or looks at them in a, a funny way. And the whole mockumentary style, I mean, not only did it become super prominent after The Office, but um, who was the, it's like the wait, Waiting for Guffman, the, um, who was that director? The, uh, uh, um, this is Spinal Tap. You know what I'm oh, talking about? Um, well, that would have been, um, was that Zemeckis or who did that? Uh, no, I, yeah. Anyway, that it's been around for a while, but he, mm. you know, he, he does it with this really interesting set of characters, you know, the vampire thing. And so it's like they, they become somewhat lovable, but they still kind of show their fangs, so to speak, at various points, too. Oh, it's just really funny, too. And honestly, especially the TV show, it starts to bring in other mythology, like other folklore, like ghosts or werewolves or whatever, and just like yeah. has commentary on them through the eyes of the vampires. Um, mm. Go check out both. If you guys want to laugh at some vampire stuff, again, they're definitely not Christian TV shows, but um, they're quite funny, quite humorous. Another one actually that I just thought of that um, wasn't on your representative list, not that you didn't think of it, but the Underworld series. That's too. well, I was actually, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if I should bring it up because like there's other okay. stuff to get into. But yeah, this whole idea of like yeah. vampires fighting werewolves and things like that. Hey, okay. So A fun that's fun i like that that's like a lot of fun this idea that there's like vampires and werewolves and they hate each other and things like that we're gonna yeah. find out that that is not historically based what we'll say that yeah <sighs> i'm afraid the folklore this is not reflected in the folklore but I don't it know sure is fun underworld or twilight but they lied to me <laughs> yes. they i have a chess have set that, you know i have a chess set that's vampires and werewolves that's how much i think this is huh. a fun idea <laughs> um i actually yeah i was like i want that for christmas babe and so she got me like a really nice chess set that like they're all like carved you know like mm. i'm i'm really nerdy like that um but uh no and and then what we do with the shadows there's the werewolves keep peeing on their front lawn and they <laughs> do it intentionally because the werewolves hate the vampires and vice versa and so yeah. like the the beginning of it is like get off my lawn you know quit doing that they keep catching them peeing on their lawn and things like that and yeah. then they uh <laughs> they get into it's like there's going to be a duel there's going to be a duel between their toughest werewolf and um the toughest vampire and like the toughest vampire he's like coded as like a warrior type from like uh the ottoman empire and so like he's he's like oh, i'm not worried about this but then when the werewolf shows up he's like a hulk sized werewolf he's huge and yeah. you know he's like oh no he's like i'm i'm in trouble here i'm in trouble he's, he keeps trying to get out of the fight and the other vampires won't let him out of the fight <laughs> but then um they're on top of a building though and one mm. vampire is like hey, i'll solve this and he goes and he picks up like a stick or a bone or something like that he's like here boy here boy <laughs> you know i can't i can't whistle actually the audience just found can't. that out um but uh so i can't make the whistle noise but he's like here boy here boy and the the werewolf's like oh gets all excited about it. he chucks it off the roof and the Can't resist fly. that dog nature. <laughs> yeah. And the werewolf jumps off the roof after him, and that's how the vampires win the fight. Um, mm. Funny stuff, man. Uh, can't, you can't take the dog out of the werewolf. Is that kind of right. the yeah. lesson there? 
So, well, well, maybe we've indulged the audience long enough. (laughs) Now I get to, now I get to slow (laughs) this conversation way down, get real academic with it. And, um, you know, (laughs) I think, all right, I think other errands. Can can, we just, yeah. Yeah. yeah, We're just going to, we're going to, you know what? I'm, I think this stuff's interesting. I think I'm looking forward to the audience. I think the audience is going to find this stuff interesting. Here's the thing that really, um, surprised me. Uh, and I'll start with this. There was a guy named Montague Summers. Have you ever heard of Montague Summers, Mike? No, I have not. Montague Summers was a guy who lived in the early 20th century, and he was supposedly a Catholic priest. But what's funny about it is there's no records. You know how, like, the churches, they keep, like, the roles of people who have been, um, you know, turning If you've received a sacrament, or, yeah, they keep track of it, sure. Yeah, you know, um... There's no there's no record of him actually being ordained a priest, but he rolled around in like a Monsignor's hat and garb. And so to this day, people aren't sure if he was just like LARPing as a priest or yeah. if he actually was a priest, because I guess in theory you could go. He, he could have been ordained by a bishop, but he wouldn't. It would have been like I a mean, it would have been like an illegal ordina- ordination like. So he it wouldn't could have been, been allowed um, to administer valid, the but not licit. Yes, it could have yes. Been valid, some people think yeah. some people think he was valid but not licit. That's the Catholic Which, terminology. I was and especially for. like during this time period, it would have like pretty much everything post Reformation is when a lot of that stuff became more formalized in terms of not just the sac, but especially the sacrament of of holy orders. Um, you know, that's when you start to see what we now think of as like the the modern or formal uh, seminary setting. Whereas, hmm. yeah, historically, it could have been a lot more informal. Uh, I mean, before, right. that, but but anyway, well, as you were saying. So Montague Summers, he takes witchcraft and folklore super serious, though. And he writes a series of books that are downright impressive. Even people who think this is like just super silly stuff can't ignore how seriously he took this subject matter. And when he writes about hmm. it, it is chock full of like... And he was a very intelligent man. He could speak like many languages. So it's one of those mm-hmm. books where he's like all this like Latin or French or German in it. And I can't read it because he doesn't bother translating it. He's one of those like he's one of those guys who like doesn't translate it for the audience because like if you're not smart enough to read this, then you're not at my level kind of thing. That's yeah. who Montague Summers was. Um, but uh, <laughs> but he wrote he wrote all kinds of stuff about like the lore of vampires. And that's where I was first introduced to like the actual historic kind of precedence of like what vampirism is. And it turns out that it is a fundamentally Christian folklore. Now I know people say that vampire stuff is all over the world and like China has its own vampire type creatures and you know, everywhere has their own vampire type creatures, right? Sure. Like Chupacabra or something like that, you know, down South America. It's like, maybe that's what you'll draw out too is the difference between like the vampirism or vampire like, vampire like. Well, I don't know. I is like the formal, like the kind of the vampire as such. Is that, yeah, yeah, we'll get to I probably not. I mean, I don't know. We'll see where the conversation goes. The, the thing is, is all that right. like I don't much care for this idea that oh, vampires exist all over the world. I mean, that's true, but like all those different creatures that like suck blood, they're not okay. the vampire that we think of in modern culture. The vampire that we think of in modern yeah. culture is this. It's a it it's 
because these ideas of like blood sucking, they do exist all over the world. We are going to get into that for sure. This idea of mm-hmm. blood sucking, what's up with that? But the idea that like an undead thing that comes back from the grave to prey upon other humans and is repelled by holy water and garlic and crosses. These are yeah. all Christian themes. And the reason why all those things exist is because of Christian roots and things like that. And so it's mm-hmm. almost like the vampire is just this like super Christian soaked folklore. And for okay. someone who kind of likes horror stuff, that just makes it really fun for me. Right. So yeah. uh, to, to get into the specifics of it, most of the stuff also as an Eastern Orthodox Christian, this is all coming from Eastern Europe. It all, it all, it's mm. Greece specifically. And then also like the Baltic countries up above it and like the Russian, the Slavic countries. So not only is it like hmm. super Christian folklore, it's actually super Eastern Orthodox Christian folklore. So even more fun for me. Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's not that the themes of it are regulated to the Eastern side of Europe or Eastern side of the faith or anything like that. The themes, they're they're pretty universal. So for the medieval mind, this is where I have to get all intellectual, nerdy, academic is we had to talk about how medievals viewed reality and why this thing called the vampire makes sense and develops and forms as a folklore in the context of the medieval mind. Okay. Okay. Um, so step one, evil, like we have this like super modern, like zoological method of categorizing creatures. So like there's zebras and there's elephants and there's humans and blah, blah, blah. Mm. And like everything has a category, right? Honestly, I think the Catholic okay. Church helped perpetuate this type of thing. So thanks, Catholics. But Whoa. medieval people. It's science, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. It's... And it has, there's good, there's it's... good reasons to categorize things. Um, but it's, you know, to the more woo-woo folk in the East, you know, or the medieval peasant for that matter, right? West or okay. East or whatever. Uh, evil is just evil. Like there's just, and there's not, there's not like this kind of like deep breakdown of categorization. It's just like there's Satan and Satan is trying to hurt you. And Satan has all kinds of different ways to try to hurt you. And sometimes those ways are like physical oppression. Like, you know, sometimes it's like demonic possession or whatever. Sometimes it's being attacked. Sometimes it's being raided by Vikings. Sometimes it's a werewolf. Sometimes it's a vampire. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, like, And there's always some kind of witch involved, you know? So like, and all of that is just one big lump of evil that is the opposite of Christ and his church and the kingdom of God. And there's no real, and this is why when you get into like the folklore of this stuff, it's all kind of like nonsensical in the sense that there doesn't, you know, vampires and werewolves are the same thing. And, you know, your Uh modern mind is going to be like, wait a second, vampires and werewolves aren't the same thing, you know? But you do see, like, so, like, for example, Dracula, he can turn into there's, a wolf, right? There's para- there's carryover, yeah, there's... Well, there's definitely carryover, that's true. But there's even, yeah. there's even, like, literal examples, like, one of the, like, Dracula turns into different creatures. He can turn into a bat. He can turn into a wolf. Mm. He can turn into... Because he's a werewolf. Vampires okay. are werewolves, right? Um, and vice versa. That's why this idea that like vampires and werewolves hate each other and, you know, they're, you know, fighting each other across millennia while fun is not from the folklore. Yeah. It's in, in the folklore story is really what you're telling me. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> is that, well, a, that's all it is. Well, and, and the other thing that has to get brought into it is like the occult practice stuff, right? 
So mm. it's all witchcraft. It's all like a relationship with Satan, right? And so um, when we're talking about like where these things come from, it always mm-hmm. has to do with satanic corruption. And so what will happen is that you will have a human and he will sell his soul to the devil in some way. Uh, or she will become a witch or he will become a wizard or whatever. And they will mm-hmm. seek worldly power through satanic trials or, or, you know, satanic means or whatever. And they will become like in league with Satan, right? Like a Dr. Faustus type character, right? Oh, when yeah. they oh, die. Another, yeah. yeah. Um, when they die, because they have given themselves over entirely to Satan in that way, mm-hmm. the result will be, and we'll get into it a little bit, but the result will be that they're going to turn into a pestilence for humanity, right? And, and they're going to plague their loved ones. And they're going to plague their community. And oftentimes, when they were alive, they would have done this by werewolfism, right? Lycanthropy. They would have been mm. like, because when you lose the image of God, when you are no longer seeking the image and likeness of God, then you mm-hmm. revert back to your base animal instincts, right? And and yeah. so you're a wolf. You're a wolf in sheep's clothing. You're 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 tearing down your community. You know. Well, and I think too, what this really speaks to is um, there's this sort of like backhanded um, recognition of the interconnection of the body of Christ, where, like you said, when if you're not if you're not working for the upbuilding of Christ and, and the kingdom then you become something that sucks the life from it, right? And this is a, a literal kind of physical manifestation of that. And like you said, you, you lose so much of your humanity, but there's still enough there where you can almost like, it kind of goes back to our, um, when we talk about the uh, uncanny valley, where it's like there still has to be enough humanity there for you to like recognize it, but then enough that's taken away where it becomes un, unnatural or um, uh, uncomfortable. And so like, when, like we've talked about with the zombies, you know, it's still the person or it still looks like the human, but they've lost so much of what makes them human, right? The soul. And the uh, same thing when, like you were saying, the person has sold his or her soul to the devil. And so they've lost that part of them. And, but there's still enough of them there where you can like see them. It looks like them or looks somewhat like them, or you can still see that, that last little shred of humanity. And what are they doing? They're sucking the life out of the, you know, the community at large, the body, the body of Christ in this case. Absolutely. Well, and they're also, and we'll get into this more detail too, they are a uh, profane caricature of the body of Christ, right? Mm -hmm. Um, They're a satanic inversion of the human um, and the church, the practices of the church. And so we'll get into that in a little bit Mm -hmm. too. But um, that's where the whole... how many no, times definitely. have you seen in a zombie show or a vampire show where like you have someone that has to like kill their loved one who's turned into a zombie or vampire or something like that and there's someone else in the room they're like that's not your husband anymore or that's not yeah. your son anymore you know but like you were saying mm-hmm. it still looks like my husband it still looks like my son and or is in there the- a little bit of my son still there a little bit of my husband still there and can I cope with being the one to actually kill you know what little left of it was there there is a really, really good 19th century story um, from a guy named Tolstoy, but it's not the Tolstoy that we're all thinking of. It's a different uh. Tolstoy. I know. Oh, shucks. <laughs> this was Alexei Tolstoy. And uh, he wrote a really, really great traditional piece of fiction called The Family of the Vordelak, because Vordelak was like a uh, Eastern Slavic word for vampire. And uh, in hmm. that story, it's about a family that slowly gets turned in. They all they all 
get turned into vampires because they can't kill the dad. The dad is the first person to fall. And he's like, hey, if I come back in 10 days and not, like I'm not back within 10 days, you got to kill me when I come back. You got to stake me in the heart. And, and, and he doesn't explain why, but he's just like, if I'm after 10 days, if I'm late, you got to kill me. Um, and he does hmm. come back late, but they won't kill him. And subsequently, mm-hmm. the entire family falls, right? And it's all told from the perspective of like a person who was like staying with the family, like hospitality style, as he's traveling okay. across Europe. And it's really mm-hmm. great. It's a great little piece of gothic fiction. I think it was from yeah. France, but it's about Eastern, it takes place in Eastern Europe. Um, cool. But yeah, it's this idea that the family can't bring themselves to harm because of that Satan disguising themselves, garbing themselves in your loved one, you know? Mm. And that's what this vampire stuff is very much about is like the, the person comes back to destroy his family Uh, specifically, especially this old folklore stuff, because what we have now in like modern interpretations of the vampire is that like, they just travel the world. Right. And they're kind of untethered. They don't have family and they just prey upon strangers and things like that. That is 100% not traditional vampire folklore. Well, Cause yeah, it's almost like now because we've tried to like rehabilitate the image where it's like, Oh, they just want to be left alone. They're trying to stay away from everybody until they, you know, because nature dictates they have to eat. And so, like you said, they become the sort of like wandering, um, I guess, traveler or whatever, because they've been kicked out of humanity as if humanity is the real problem. Is that kind of Mm -hmm. the position you're, you're creating? Well, the just position I'm pointing out is that, uh, in the traditional folklore, they they harm their loved ones specifically, right? And I don't mean that in the sense that, oh, like, oh, this vampire has fallen in love with Bella and he doesn't want to harm her, you know? Like, I'm talking <laughs> Man, about, like, they come back. That act. <laughs> <laughs> it's just why it's a very popular story that everyone knows about. Um, sure, but, sure. Uh, uh, but that, it kind of speaks to the whole you have to invite Dracula in, too, which we'll get more into when we get to the And you do. Dracula you do episode. have to. That's the other thing. That's it's like, even in the traditional... Yep, the, the has father to has to get invited back in. And like, so when he shows up, when the father shows back up after 10 days, he's like, aren't you going to invite me in? I'm your father. You know, he he pulls like the father card. He's like, what is this? Where are you guys crazy? Um, mm. And they're, and they get all ashamed and they like bring him into the house. And, and you know, it's like, oh, you guys are so dumb. <laughs> he told you not to do this. Your father told you not to do this. You're, and here you go. You're the one yelling at the screen like, don't go in there. Don't go. Don't. Yeah, invite exactly. Don't, that's, right. Um, yeah. but, uh, no, th- so in traditional folklore, a vampire comes back and like kills his mom and then kills his sister and then kills his brother, kills his children. Right. Because it's, it's, they destroy, it's the destruction of the family and to an extent, the destruction of the community, because when their own family, when they can't feast on their own family, they go to like the second layer of their family, which in a medieval community, like medieval communities, they were super close knit. Right. You know, like these villages, like were an extended family, right? Um, and so it's very personal in vampire folklore. It's not like random strangers being killed. I mean, there's some of that, but like for the most part, the biggest fear is that your loved ones are going to be your destruction. And mm-hmm. and um, you know, some of this is because of like <laughs> plague, right? I mean. This folklore is coming out of a that's world a, yeah, in which, like the Black Plague, of... the Black Plague. Well, because all right, so here, here's something I want well, you it, all to. It kind of goes mind. back to the whole like personifying death thing, you know? Yes. And 
Well, because these are dead to, bodies, right? These are these are better way reanimated death dead to suck bodies. The life you too yeah. is through this like personified disease. So that that is an interesting um, you know. Well, that is and, and that's a that's a hundred percent. I mean, two things to keep in mind: in, in the medieval world, it's all Satan, right? All evil is all Satan. And it's, it's, you know, it's like, why is it a werewolf or why is it a vampire? Or why is it both? Or, or why is it disease? Or why is it, it because it's all the same. Disease mm-hmm. is demonic. Disease mm-hmm. is satanic. Sickness is a sign of demonic oppression, right? Um, plague, when plagues roll through villages and decimate villages, starting in the family, your, your father comes home with the plague and spreads that plague mm-hmm. to everyone who he loves, right? Well, eventually, this paradigm of your own family being your physical destruction is that's the zeitgeist that vampiric folklore emerges out of, right? They just personify it. They just get it. They are. Yeah. It's just personified. It's just personified plague, right? Which is personified demonic, satanic influence and things like that. And isn't that what so much of mythology has always been? Is just the like taking this reality of human nature, of human existence, or of human experience and giving a name to it, giving a face to it. And Mm -hmm. so here you have, like you said, one that is unique to the, uh, you know, what, late medieval European kind of experience. Sure. Absolutely. Um, and so to, to just like um, take the natural conversation path forward out of this idea that plague, because I think like a modern person could just like leave it at plague and the personification of death, which is a totally accurate mm-hmm. statement. But the vampires are really good opportunity to reinforce just how much the spiritual and the material were the same thing. To the medieval mind, yeah i mean what right? brought death into the world in the first place mm-hmm. right i mean and so that's it's a recognition of the deeper reality the deeper spiritual reality not necessarily seeing this um arbitrary division that's between, right well that's the that's the world of germs and disease and this is the world of you know devils it's more like and i actually remember um there was this uh, a writer who said you know if i was if i was the devil i would want to use something like germs to bring you know like to hide behind i'd almost like hide behind germs when i sure. wanted to operate or you know bring fear into the world or something uh yeah yeah absolutely it's just it's it's a it's it just makes sense honestly right yeah. like how how humans are going to personify disease and destruction like this um yeah. uh but because they have such a spiritual worldview that's so infused with the powers of the divine and the powers of the demonic and you have mm-hmm. the sacred and the profane, right? Where, you know, the powers of the divine are suffused through the church and its sacraments and the community mm-hmm. of love and, you know, the sacrament of marriage and all that stuff. Well, the opposite of all that, the inversion of all that is going to manifest in this creature too. So they don't leave yeah. it at this kind of like biological level. They understand that it's both biological and spiritual. So that's why, um, well, that's why they, they come back to life, right? So in the, in, in the origins, <laughs> I said that word, the origins. Good of, emphasis. Or, Good origin, emphasis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, back in Greece, in the Eastern Church, excommunication is what caused vampirism, right? Mm-hmm. Once you are excommunicated from the life of Christ, from the body of Christ, um, that's a surefire way 
to become a plague upon humanity to be, in, in your mm-hmm. death. Because when you die, your body won't corrupt. This is how it was understood in like... Um, you know, I don't think I don't think this was like the official doctrine of the church, but I think this is like the opinion that like peasant people had in Greece back in like 400 AD, right? Where okay. um, if you are bound by excommunication, then you will not corrupt until that excommunication is lifted, and so hmm. you become undead, right? Yeah. This is where undead comes from. This weird liminal place where like they're dead but their body is not allowed to die. And so because of the excommunication and because of lack uh, of unity that it has with the, all the other Christians who have fallen asleep, right? Those who have, um, you know, they it's in a sense, their soul is at rest at peace with the rest of the body of Christ. But this one can't experience that because like you said, it's stuck in this in between space. It is. And it's also a really interesting inversion of like um, saints, not, not, decomposing right because Uh simultaneously you do have strong christian traditions of saints like so the most godly people their bodies will not corrupt and they'll turn into relics and things like that um because of how holy they are well this is like a weird perversion of that where they're not they're not um they're not incorruptible they're so corrupt that they can't fall apart like you know because of like yeah the the binding of the church on it kind of thing. And so these bodies come back to life and plague their families and things like that. Um, and so in, in all the things that we talked about, because all of this, like what gets you excommunicated from the church? Well, like witchcraft mm. will, you know, like making packs with Satan will, mm. all that stuff, yeah. or suicide will, right? Because that's another really, really common through line is that suicide or violent death is also a cause of vampirism, right? So if you mm. die by your own half, you commit suicide in the medieval mind, you've, you've made your deal with the devil. You've rejected everything that Christ has given you by killing yourself, by removing, well, and you've done it against the image of God within you and things like that. It's and satanic. just to plug in really quickly, this is, a, like you even said, this is the, the medieval mind where maybe, you know, pastoral theology and just our understanding of, of psychology and depression has come a long way where that's not by any means what, you know, the official stance is or what it has to be. It's sure. just more, this was how medieval people made sense of the reality that they were seeing, you know. Yep. Yeah, I don't want to be insensitive to. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I just, um, just a very quick, you know, I didn't want to derail you, but I just thought no, that's since nice you, of you, you know, to brought say. up it's that example. Point. Yeah. So. Um, well, and then also other examples would be like um, being uh, hung at a crossroads because the crossroads hmm. uh, was this geographic location, a liminal space where Satan did his work. It, you know, I was you're not say, on the st- that's in a lot of movies. That's where it happens, right? That's where the person yeah, the crossroads. Has that deal, it's all tethered together. Devil. It's all satanic. It's all it's all making deal with the devil. It's all it's all it's like violent. It's like unpeaceful death, right? Um, it's mm. it's the way you die, or if you're excommunicated from the church, if you're separated from the community in some way, if you remove yourself from the community, if you pursue Satan, this is when you become a plague upon your family and your community. And you come back from the dead mm. because you can't die. You can't, you know, death was given by God as a boon for humanity so they wouldn't live in sin forever. They wouldn't live in sin yeah. for eternity. If you reject that, then you will live forever in sin as a vampire. You will not well, die in the same way that we're supposed to die. The type of death that God gives us 
as a mercy. Yeah, I mean, you get a type of what, death that's like a weird character of death. And and maybe this is where the whole like sympathizing for vampires and a lot of modern media comes from is because we do recognize that there is something sad about this. There's something miserable about this prolonged existence, you know, spread. What's the, I mean, mm-hmm. to make it a Lord of the Rings reference, it's the butter spread over too much bread. Like that's exactly what Bilbo is taught. Like he's yeah, no. becoming, like, that's, that's not, a vampiric. There's our, there's our bingo. There's our, yeah. All the way down. Yep. So, but it's the, like, that's exactly what, you know, Tolkien was, was drawing from when he has his Gollum character, when he has what is happening to Bilbo, fortunately, slowly. And we talk, they talk about the circumstances for that, but it's also why, um, you know, if you remember, do you, maybe as a kid, did you have to, in like sixth grade, have to read Tuck Everlasting where they, I haven't, the I haven't, and they live forever, but uh-uh. that's where like, again, they don't become vampire, but they do live forever when they drink this right. water and the family did it accidentally. So they weren't trying to, but mm-hmm. you, you sympathize with them because you recognize how out of place they feel, how it feels like their existence is just drawn Yeah, how on tough that would on. be. Well, even, even and people who the caricature. Same thing with, yeah. Well, even people who caricature the Christian promise of eternal life, they, yeah. they'll say, I don't want that. I don't want to live forever, you know, kind of thing. Because mm-hmm. they recognize that if you think that eternal life is sequential, if it's Kronos, um, yeah. that, like, th- that becomes a hell over time, yeah. right? Um, the one thing I do think that's the, those types of themes are good fodder for vampire movies. Go back There's and listen a, to our time episode from a couple of weeks ago. By the way. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, like interview with the vampire, there was a movie that had Brad Pitt and, um, yeah, the Tom, uh, Cruise. Yeah. Tom Cruise. It's and based on Anne Rice, really, really popular series. Yeah. They did an yeah. AMC one. I think that one's full of like weird stuff, but like, um, I of course it's all it. vampire stuff. So it's all weird stuff, but like, uh, <laughs> But um, that's a, a really interesting movie, frankly, a really good drama about vampirism. But the the main theme of it is just being doomed to like live forever, having to kill people you don't want to kill and things like that. So it's a very humanizing. Maybe that's take. where the sympathetic. Yeah, maybe that's where yeah, the it's very. Uh, oh, that's been going started. around. Well, we can get into it in the, when we get to the second part of the sandwich where we bring back stories again. But like um, what I will say in the folklore, that's all hogwash. In the folklore, it's kind of like when we were talking about how like you don't have to sympathize with orcs in our yeah. um, Mandalorian episodes. Like, no, okay. these they're parasites. They're parasites. Yeah. Like they they have sold their soul to the devil. They have rejected love. They have rejected Christ. They have rejected God. They have lost their humanity. Literally, they have become undead animals that bring nothing but pain and destruction to the people they loved most in life because that's like the choice they made. And that's and that's hmm. what and that's how they are going to be used by Satan now to afflict humanity. So there's no sympathy for these creatures. Like and and they're very zombie-like, frankly. You know, like so hmm. at the end of the day, they don't even most of the time, especially in like the real early folklore stuff, is like, well, I take it back. There's two, there's kind of two different like strains here. One strain is is like they do have like um the pretense of humanity. So think about the family of Vordalak thing. The father's like, I'm still your dad. Let me in kind of thing, right? They do. Yeah. There's there's examples of that, right? But then the, the second example, though, is like they're basically zombies. They're basically mm-hmm. zombies. They don't, they've lost their humanity entirely. And they literally just kind of like roam around trying to, you know, get back into their homes where they used to live and like literally parasite their family, you know, mm. suck their blood. Yeah. 
Um, so before getting back to the other story stuff, let's just do a quick run through of how this inversion of Christianity looks in vampire folklore. We will start obviously with like crucifixes. You know, mm-hmm. the popular tradition is like if you have a cross, you know, vampires can't stand the cross, right? It is literally because it's the cross of Christ. It's literally because I mean, demons, the demonic, the satanic, two, yeah, yeah, two pieces of wood put together, or yep. the letter T. Which yeah, I'm they sure can't stand, stand up comedian talk about how vampires have a hard time reading because of so many T's <laughs> that they come across. But but anyway, not to uh, yeah, Very not good. to lighten this up too much. No, yeah. exactly, exactly. Or uh, holy water. Right. Again. And mm-hmm. and so I actually I um, put into the outline here just some of the prayers that are said in the Eastern Orthodox Church over holy water, uh, mm-hmm. which I think are I'm just going to read them real quick uh, for the sake of this episode. Uh, that these waters may be sanctified by the power and effectual operation and descent of the Holy Spirit. They may descend upon these waters, the cleansing op- the cleansing operation of the super substantial trinity. And remember, folks, we're talking like this is all like plague and disease stuff, right? The vampire yeah. is like a parasite and a disease upon humanity. This idea of cleanliness, of purification, as opposed to like disease, right? I mean, think of like leprosy in the Old and New Testament, you know? It's the idea that there's no difference between being healthy physically and being healthy spiritually and things like that. Sure. Um, yeah. That Satan may be speedily crushed under our feet. And that every counsel directed against us may be brought to naught. That the Lord our God will free us from every attack and temptation of the enemy and make us worthy of the good things which he hath promised. So these things, some of these prayers are what are said over holy water when it gets blessed, right? And that hmm. water, in turn, is what's used against undead evil parasite creatures, right? Yeah. Um. You know, when we uh, talk about the cross in the church, one of our um, hymns is, let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. Let those who hate him flee from his presence. As smoke vanishes, so let them vanish, and as wax melts before the presence of fire, so let demons perish from the presence of those who love God and sign themselves with the sign of the cross. Right? This is all like good versus evil, you know, triumphant Christians against like the powers of darkness stuff. And, you know, we... um we were talking before of like where in the spiritual context we see holy water the most is, is in the context of baptism, which it's not as obvious or as clear in the Western tradition, but um, you are seeing a, a sort of reemergence of the emph- emphasis on the exorcism aspect of a baptism that in this, you know, ceremony that includes holy water, where the water is used to give new life to the, to the baptized person, there is an exorcism that takes place. and it's like that still happens. That's And so the whole connection of, of holy water and banishing, you know, evil spirits mm-hmm. or banishing the devil, um, it reminded me of, and I can't believe I didn't think of this earlier when we were talking from dusk till dawn. So you brought up how they put holy water in the squirt guns. Did you ever see that meme or that picture from the 2020 pandemic of the priest who was baptizing a baby with a, like spray, squirting the water oh. at the oh, no. baby? <laughs> I'll have to send it to you. It'll have to be the episode art. And uh, yeah, oh, it'll no. be the. Uh, yeah, honestly, there's a that priest might with be a squirt gun yeah. with, holy, with holy water. And Yikes. you can see the parent, you know, six feet apart holding the baby and uh, being baptized. So, wow. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, anyway, so. Yeah, no, no, that's but, fine. But anyway, it's cool. I mean, this is, this is why I love this folklore so much because it's so like Christian, right? And it's emphasis. So theological. 
It is, yeah, you know. Yeah. But how about things like garlic, right? That doesn't seem so obvious. We can say holy water and cross is obvious, right? Well, it's because mm. back in medieval um, apothecary, right? Back when in kind of pre-modern medicine, stuff like that, garlic was one of those type of superfoods that has like um, antiseptic qualities. So they mm. would use garlic as medicine to fight disease and things like that. Mm. And because the vampire is just a form of disease, to the medieval minds, right? As they understood disease as both a physical and spiritual yeah. reality. Um, yeah. So, well, this helps my wounds heal. And so it'll ward off evil spirits too. Right. Yeah. Um, and you know, even up as, no, that's late an as, interesting one. Yeah. Even as late yeah. as, um, you know, world war two, the Russians were using, if they didn't have penicillin, they would use garlic and like treat their wounds mm. with garlic and things like that, because it's just, They've been doing it for a thousand years. So that's where garlic comes from. Um, It was medicinal. Uh, But then, you know, the biggest inversion of, or commentary on this, but this is a good inversion of where the vampire is in relation to Christianity is the blood sucking itself. Right. Yeah. So like, uh, and now this is not something like the idea that the life is the blood for the blood is the life is obviously famously in the old Testament, but this Mm -hmm. is a, this is a human universal. This is why you have yeah. blood-sucking creatures in China and South America and in Europe and things like that. Africa, every mm. every civilization has this idea that the blood is the life. So the Old Testament did not introduce that idea to humanity. No. And you can see it in all kinds of like pagan stories too, you know, like famously well, a really good example is Odysseus. And this goes into one of the so you talked about how yeah it wasn't introduced in the Old Testament but it also goes into the um, prohibitions of the Israelites in the Old Testament is because this was being used to a very nefarious purpose in the context of worship in the context of idolatry is that kind of, I didn't want to like is that oh kind no of where no that's to? actually I'm glad you went there yeah because you know Odysseus would have taken us a little bit outside the con- if we're in the Old Testament still um, I put uh, Psalm sixteen as a reference to the Canaanite blood libels or libations Mm -hmm. where they would be pouring the blood into. And so like animal sacrifice as such, you know, like if you really want to get into like how sacrifice works in, in any context, both the old Testament and the pagan context, the Lord of the spirits episodes, they have really, really good breakdowns of like how life, like blood is like life stuff. It's like mm-hmm. organic life stuff. And so the people get sprinkled with the blood, you know, and because they're yeah. being given life, the blood is being applied to them and the life is being applied to them kind of thing. But, you know, mm-hmm. the demonic pagan sacrifices, you know, they were being offered blood. The demons were being offered blood um, in these kind of blood sacrifices, you know, uh, human sacrifices too. And yeah, because, and that's all vampire stuff. I mean, it's clearly it, to the medieval Eastern European, they would have that, that's part and parcel of why they think vampires are what vampires are, because demonic entities want to drink blood. Because mm-hmm. every all humanity knows that from time immemorial, you know, dead things want mm-hmm. to drink blood. And so where I was going was uh, Odysseus, you know, has a really good example. Homer, um, Odysseus has to feed blood to the dead people so that they can talk because they need mm-hmm. life stuff. If, if they don't have blood, they're just shades. But if they have blood, they can perpetuate their existence. Well, and you see this in a lot of, not even necessarily vampire stories, but when somebody is like, 
doing some sort of magical conjuring or creating some sort of seal, it always requires, you know, the character has to like cut his hand and let some of the blood drop into the cauldron or into the, you know what I'm saying? Into the oh, thing. yeah. Because, yep, absolutely. Yeah, Give up a bit of their life. So, but it, it's this idea of, yeah, it's, you know, whatever spirit you're conjuring is like drinking that blood. It's taking that in. And usually mm-hmm. it's a bad guy. So it kind yep. of, you know, kind of works. No it's kind of fitting. So No doubt. And clearly this is all a, a satanic inversion of our Eucharistic act as the body, mm-hmm. as the body of Christ. And then we participate in the body and blood of Christ and things like that. We have a sacred ordained way to manifest this spiritual truth that the blood is the life, right? And so mm. these these weird, perverse, undead entities that are perpetuating their existence by taking the blood in themselves, perpetuating their undead, quote-unquote, life by sucking the life out of other people, that's all mm. just Satan stuff to the medieval mind. It's like, and it all just makes perfect sense. Um, yeah. So I know that we're wrapping up, we're getting to the end of this episode, but I promised the second loaf of bread, the second piece of bread on this. Mm. And... That's intentional because next time we're going to talk about Dracula. You can't have yeah. you can't have a conversation about vampires and not bring up Dracula. But there's so much to unpack in Dracula that we I was like, I gotta, I gotta, I need a second two. episode, right? Yeah. But a a brief little you know uh, re- literary review of the things leading up to Dracula works for this episode. So let me just All give right. you a quick rundown. It starts with Lord Byron. Everyone knows Lord Byron. He uh, was a famous poet in the early 19th century, and he was famous for being like basically a debauched libertine. Um, mm-hmm. And he creates, he introduces the first English poem of uh, that references vampirism. Um, it hmm. was called uh, the Yor or the Jor. I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's not yeah. a poem about vampires, but it has an example of vampirism in it. And I won't read all of it, um, but you can go Google like what his what he says about vampires, and it's a reference to a person coming back to the dead and killing their family, right? Hmm. In other words, we're not at sexy vampire in eighteen oh nine when hmm. Lord Byron is writing about vampires, even though Lord Byron himself is a famously debauched person. Yeah. He understands vampire, and he learned this in Greece, by the way. He took one of those like European tours of the continent, and he went to Greece, and that's where he heard of vampires. Um, hmm. But uh, yeah, and in that context, yeah, the vampire comes back and kills their family, right? So we're not, we're not hmm. sexy vampires yet, folk. Hmm. Um, but he had a buddy who quickly became not his buddy named John Polidori. He was his doctor, his traveling doctor. He was the same age as Lord Byron, but Uh, He came to hate Lord Byron because Lord Byron was a jerk. And so he wrote a vampire story called The Vampire um, Creative. Uh, But uh, hey, if it's like the first one, then he gets it. I was going to say it is because, yeah, Yeah. exactly. You know, they didn't even like, people didn't even like know what vampires were. And so, yeah, you can just say the vampire. It's not a vampire story. It's the vampire story. Yeah. And he literally just takes Byron and turns him into a vampire character named Lord Ruthven. And Lord Ruthven, he goes around seducing women all over Europe and like killing them and like ruining the reputations. That is literally mm. so. This is like a super not veiled attack on Byron's character. Um, okay. And uh, but that's this is kind of this is this is the origin of the sexy vampire that seduces women and all that stuff. It's the and vampire by John some, Polidori. Eighteen. You know, if we're seeing it in terms, if we're seeing it through the lens of sin. 
you know, because we can see sin itself as sucking the spiritual life from a community. And yep. it, you're, you're talking Victorians, like what's the sin that they're like obsessed with in terms of sucking the, the life or the respectability out of the community? It's going to be something to do with lust. It's going to be something to do with, and so that you have this vampire who is already symbolic of sucking the life from. And yep. now it's like, how do we, you know, almost like spiritualize that, but not spiritualize it in the sense of like, actual spirituality it's more like the spirit of our community that seems sure. like a, a good sort of analog not, well not that they're not like, mutually exclusive and that's why that's why yeah. we're actually when you get to dracula you're going to see both but it's this is this is kind of like the prototypes this is like where all these things because yeah. we went through a whole episode of like vampire lore where it's pestilence and disease and demonism yeah and killing your family it's like well how do you get to sexy vampire how do you get to sparkling mm. sexy vampire you know in the sun from all that well, yeah. kind of through John Polidori, because he's making fun of Lord Byron, or he wants to tear down yeah. Lord Byron's reputation. And so when one of the like, things Lord about Bi this... Byron is fine with this. He's like, hey, I can't... Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, and honestly, it, and so... And, but there's Backfire no references to Christianity in The Vampire by John Polidori. He really is, yeah. like, he's taken this idea of, like, destroying people by sucking their blood, um, but it's not within a Christian context at all. Right. Mm. Uh, because this is like romanticism and uh, post enlightenment. And he's really just adopting this, this folklore to fit a very different story type. Um, and so that's where you actually see the divergence in English literature. You start with Lord Byron himself actually having a reference to a traditional, like vampires are a pest that killed their family. But then you get John Polidori, his buddy creating a vampire tale that becomes really popular, but it's all about the sexy vampire that lures women. After that, you get Varney the Vampire in the mid-19th century. That is, I haven't actually read this because it's like 800 pages, um, but it was really popular at the time. That's an example of a vampire that, so far as I know, it's not like rooted in Christian tropes. It's still just a vampire rolling around, attacking strangers, traveling the continents, just like pulpy, salacious, you know, biting on women's necks type stuff mm. um but then the other these are all like the most popular oh i i should mention that family of the vortilac this is also this was a french story but it got translated into english and that was a really famous one too that one is very traditional that one has mm. killing the family rooted in you know the cross becomes like the guy the main character gets saved because he's wearing a cross and the cross mm. intervenes between him and this you know, person that's going to kill him kind of thing. There's a monk yeah. in it that gives him advice, you know? So that one still has a lot of like Eastern European Christian tropes in it. Uh, but then in the 1870s, you get Carmilla, which is a great story. I actually love the story Carmilla. It's really famous nowadays because it's got a lot of like proto-lesbian stuff in it. And even I have to admit that the story does have things that are really <laughs> easy to get lesbian connotations from. Like the main character's like, it's okay. like she loved me like I was a man, you know? Like, it's like, okay. Mm. Um, but she, Carmilla, she can't stand Christian stuff. So they got the Christian stuff back in it. Um, you know, there's a funeral procession, they're singing hymns, and she has to like stop her ears up and like, la, 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 you know, I don't want to hear this, you know, she gets yeah. sick. Uh, and then after that, you get Dracula. And that's for next episode. And yeah, well, no, thank, and I appreciate the 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 recap too, because it does kind of build this up to, so that we can more fully appreciate the, you know, when we talk specifically about Dracula, even though we might go through some different iterations of Dracula, where we can see a lot of these things come from. And now that we have this foundation too, seeing a lot of the 
very explicitly spiritual side to it too. So yeah, thank you, Jacob. And thank you uh, guys for coming to listen to this episode of the Voyage Podcast. Um, look forward to just or hearing from you guys. Uh, leave a five-star uh, rating, leave a positive review, positive comment. Um, and that can kind of get this podcast out to more listeners and we can start to um, you know just kind of share this conversation with others. Thanks, guys. Come back. Part two. Thanks for listening to Voyage Podcasts. The Voyage Podcast is a production of Voyage Comics and Publishing, which seeks to create exceptional entertainment informed by Catholic values that inspire people to live a heroic life. Voyage Comics seeks to advance truth and beauty found in powerful stories. To learn more, visit voyagecomics.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 